when you develop the body and the heart relationships, the empathy and the mind for, for clear thinking and the spirit for that larger connection and the relationships, the community, then your brain becomes robust to stress. All the centers come on at once and that's what's needed. We need Gestalt education. We need the Esalen curriculum for the human potential so that people can bear the complexity of today's world and not lapse into this me, us, them, simplified mind. Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. My guest today is president of Esalen, Gordon Wheeler. Gordon is a licensed clinical psychologist, as well as the author of numerous books on Gestalt psychology. He's noted for his work integrating the Gestalt tradition with relational and developmental psychology. Gordon teaches and trains clinicians around the world, also serving as editor and director of Gestalt Press. And today I invited him to educate me about the history of Gestalt psychology at the Esalen Institute. Gordon Wheeler, thank you so much for joining us today on Voices of Esalen. Well, thank you, Sam. I have to start with what Gestalt is and what it meant and where it came from. A hundred years ago, there were these two models. There was Freud and there was behaviorism. And each of them reduced the human subject to a set of drives or, or mm -hmm. uh, measurables. Wait, when you say 100 years ago, are you being precise? Are you saying sort of like the... Beginning of the 20th century and on up into the, into the 1920s. So that whole period before and after World War I. And uh, Gestalt came along and they said, partly inspired by the American philosopher, psychologist, William James, they said, you know, you're leaving something out. You can never reduce human process. We don't. We can't see into the brain. We don't know everything in those days. We didn't, all you knew was what you learned from cadavers that had brain injuries. So they began to know, well, speech is connected with this center of the brain and things like that, because it was missing in this guy who died. And then we could see why, because that's where his tumor was or something like that. They were just working inferentially. So the way that, that their model shaped up and how it's held up for a century into today, today's contemporary neuroscience, the Gestalt perceptual model, kind of model of the self, is remarkable. And Pearls took a mid-century springboard off of that. But what they found was that uh, there's all kinds of processes going on of selective attention and what people are attending to and what they're filling in. And when there's a gap or a mistake, people will correct it in their perceptions. When there's an unfinished task, they're brought, drawn back to it. There was all kinds of activity going on that couldn't be reduced to either photons and electrical impulses. That's the behavioral. That's the behavioral. Or... Uh, psychosexual drives, which is the biological as Freud interpreted it, that everything went back to, sure, you are interested in the world, but that goes back to the sexual drive. It's like, well, you know, these perceptual, physical, electrical processes are going on, and certainly sexual drives and other kinds of drives are going on, but there's a synthetic element, there's an interpretive element that happens somehow in the human brain mind that isn't being captured in either of these reductive models. So who would you say is the kind of the father of Gestalt therapy then? Gestalt therapy comes along a generation later. These are the original Gestalt perceptual psychologists working in the lab saying, no, we can apply science okay. to these perceptual problems and we're going to surface 
what we believe were going to surface, and they did, is a stage that can't be reduced by either of these major models. That was a revolution. It was outrageous. It was vilified by both of those parties, but it persisted and prevailed. And both of those models today, their contemporary descendants of behavioral therapy and psychodynamic therapy, draw heavily on Gestalt. They depend on Gestalt to come to life. Okay. So, <clears throat> so that was perceptual research. Very static lab research. We give you a problem on paper. You, fill, you say what you saw, but then we can show you that's not really what you saw. You filled that in. That's, and that, that's, not a, that's not a bug. That is the system. That's the way the human mind works. It quickly makes a whole picture with a lot of interpretation. Mm -hmm. And Kurt Lewin, the leading gestaltist of the century, really a second figure between those guys and pearls, he said famously, there's no perception without interpretation. Mm -hmm. That's like at the heart of gestalt therapy. Okay. You are interpreting. You are making your world. Mm -hmm. It's not given to you. You have to select, and then you have to decide what to pay attention to, what to ignore. You can't take in everything. That's where the physicalists were wrong. And a lot of learning is pretty hard to reduce to sexual drives. That's where the Freudians were inadequate. But Lewin took the model out of the lab into the world of real-life stakes, and he called it mapping. You enter, you enter into a situation at every moment in life. You're basically coping with something. It has to do with the needs that are subjectively up. If you're hungry, you're coping with finding food. If you're a soldier in wartime, you're coping with evading, escaping, deserting, reconnoitering, attack, whatever. You're coping with a situation. Lewin himself was a soldier in World War I, and he based his first papers on that on soldiers, different people entering a village at night in the war zone with their different agendas. Is it two lovers? Is it, you know, then they see, well, there's a barn, promising hideout. There's a church, maybe, you know. Mm. There's, that could be people who will catch us. Same with the deserter or the, the lost guy from his regiment. But the other ones who are seeing if there's subversive work going on in this town, they have a different agenda, and they make a different map. And if they drew that map for you later, it would have different features on it. Church wouldn't even be on one of the maps. So that was Lewin's idea, that we're entering, we're subjectively mapping. We generally don't stop to correct it. It's never a finished product because we're dealing with something and moving on. In the process, we're doing a lot of assumption, a lot of prior beliefs, a lot of projection, as we call it in Gestalt, that is imagining what other people's motives are. And we mostly don't stop to check that all out. And we synthetically make an interpretation. It works or it doesn't work. We learn from it or, or we don't. Maybe we make the same mistake over and over. But that's the way we go forward in life. And with that kind of insight, Lewin founded social psychology, uh, industrial organizational psychology, group dynamics, action research, which is still used all over the organizational world today. That's where we don't know the structure, the real structure of this organization. We know it on paper. So make an intervention and see the effects, and then you're going to start to infer the structure. Well, there you can begin to see similarities to Gestalt therapy. People are working with prior unexamined beliefs, needs that they're not in touch with, 
all kinds of perceptions that have not been checked out, and they're resolving into a certain thing, like, I need to be a certain way in this situation. Well, what if you weren't? Want to try tying your right hand back behind you and leading with your left hand, literally or figuratively? Want to try standing up and getting some breath behind your voice when you say that instead of saying it so timidly? Want to try stopping and breathing and checking out what your body is doing? All these are familiar gestalt therapy techniques. Mm. They come really out of Lewin. Make an experiment on the situation. It's action research in clinical application. Make an experiment. Figure out what might be going on from that. Make another one. You never finish, but the person begins to experience some new things and free them, become aware of unexamined beliefs, become aware of unregistered feelings in their body, become aware of the fact that what I'm imagining your state of mind is right now may not be right, and I may don't have the skills to check that out. Right. That's, that's, in other words, our nature is rapidly constructive. That's how we survive. We don't check everything out. We're not even, that's, again, not a bug. That's coping. Who has the time? <laughs> and uh, you get good enough and you, you test it out and you work, you go on. And we do tend to get fixed on the same mistake over and over. We all do in certain situations. That's what Pearl's called a fixed gestalt. Every time I see an authoritative man or a nurturant woman or a seductive person or whatever it is, certain coping strategies kick in. If I learned how to deal with that kind of person very early, maybe pre-verbally, maybe under anxious conditions, then those fixed gestalts, those patterns of behavior that are triggered by a single stimulus can be very rigid and very unexamined and very anxious-making to examine. You mentioned Fritz, Fritz Perls. Did, did Fritz Perls begin as a Gestalt therapist? No, no. He was a, all his life, he was a registered psychoanalyst Freudian. He initially hoped, with his first book, he hoped to point out some incomplete parts of Freud theory, Freud's theory. Now, it's a different topic, but Freud's personality was not very receptive to people pointing out incomplete things in his theory. <laughs> so that didn't go well for Pearls. He came away from that encounter massively hurt. He never got the recognition he wanted in Freudian circles. And he began to realize that there was something else that he could orient around. At this time, was, was the field of Gestalt therapy established? Not at all, no. He brought a very preliminary manuscript drawing on some Gestalt ideas. He had written one book, Ego, Hunger, and, and Aggression, and it mentioned Gestalt in passing. He could see his wife had studied Gestalt very deeply as a psychology in the 20s in Germany. Laura Pearls, who was a major teacher in the field, and had written part of that book with him without credit. And uh, the part about babies, which he was not too familiar with. But she'd had two babies. Unfortunately, he was not too familiar with them. And, uh, and so uh, she impressed him with the importance of Gestalt perceptual theory and how relevant it was to the way he, the human mind works. So from that, he began to try to develop his first ideas about the importance of positive aggression. He could see that if you have a construction, an interpretation, that has a certain aggressive energy in it. 
you have manipulated the world into a particular interpretation. Now, if you want to change that, it needs to be sort of destructured, which is again a loosening or a, you could say, an aggressive kind of act. And he felt aggression had a much more positive side to it than Freud was allowing. Freud thought aggression was all just part of the death instinct. And Pearls was saying, no, no, it's necessary to learning. It's necessary to growth. It has a positive side. Otherwise, you just go around interjecting things, would be his term. Just swallowing them whole uncritically. To criticize is a little more aggressive. He really wanted to support people's independent, critical thinking. Now, you got to realize, Pearls was born in the 90s, the 1890s, in the upper bourgeois Jewish circles of Berlin. Very conservative social environment and very oppressive. And he felt oppressed by all that. And he, all his life, then he lived in fascist times. There came communism, there came uh, Nazism, there came uh, Franco's fascism. It was spreading around the world. He joined the mid-century existentialists saying that the, the only weapon we have against groupthink, against mass movements, is the individual critical spirit. For Sartre, all danger was other people. Relationship is a loss of the self. Fritz was very much in that camp. Fritz believed that relationship is a loss of the self. That's really Sartre's wording, but it's a threat, definitely a threat to the self because you might go into what Fritz would call confluence, which is I've given up my critical separateness and I've become with you. Now you might say, how would anybody dance how would anybody have satisfying sex without an element of confluence? You let yourself merge into the, into the flow. That would be very edgy for Fritz. He wouldn't go so far as to say there's no such thing as good sex, but he, he would join Freud in saying you've got to watch out for a loss of self there. Very close to a psychotic experience, Freud would say. Fritz was in that camp. How much of Fritz Perl's... Uh, uh ideas about Gestalt therapy were formed by the time he arrived at, at Esalen. Oh, very much so. But he, he got out of, uh, after the war ended, he, they took refuge in South Africa as uh, immigrant, really refugee Jews. They established their psychoanalytic practices, Fritz and Laura Pearls, in South Africa. But South Africa was swinging into apartheid and into a very fascistic regime. So again, they fled. They weren't personally in danger, but they fled from that oppressive regime that they did not believe in, came to New York, and there he teamed up brilliantly with Paul Goodman, who's the theoretical founder. Paul Goodman understood Lewin, and he understood the application of Fritz's ideas to, to draw on Gestalt thinking and Lewin's ideas, which could be translated into a clinical personal growth setting. So... Goodman wrote the book that bears their name, Pearl's Hefferline Goodman, uh, called Gestalt Therapy. And that put them on the New York map as trainers and bearers of a revolutionary new approach to personality and human development and, and therapy. That then, Fritz, after they broke with each other, Fritz broke with everybody sooner or later. He was not a long-term kind of a guy, also at Esalen. And he came here and set up shop with his own brand of very individualistic, very um, 
kind of, I would call it, this is my language, relationally phobic therapy and teaching, but a huge correction to the oppressive cultural 50s, bland, uncritical, post-war. It almost seems like his interests would have dovetailed with the kind of... Um iconoclasts who came to Esalen in the early 1960s. Exactly. It was a natural fit. And, uh, and the culture, in retrospect, was in a sort of mass PTSD. You had World War I, then you had the whole Nazis, then you had World War II. At the end of World War II, they learned the truth about the camps, which were committed by people in what we thought were the most advanced nation in the world culturally, the most tolerant. Uh, Germany was the leader in Europe of, of Jewish and uh, international tolerance. And at the same time, we learned that, uh, that we had the power to destroy whole cities, whole nations with the atomic bombs. That was a hard shock, I think, in retrospect, for Western culture to kind of a huge loss of faith in yourself. Fritz stepped into that kind of climate. It's like you can't, you don't, you don't have enough faith in yourself. You're not really getting to getting in touch with darker sides of yourself that the culture is prohibiting. You're not getting in touch with your sexual liberation. You're not getting in touch with your aggressive energies. You're not getting in touch with being a, a bad boy or a bad girl. Let's liberate all that and we'll get down to the real us and the world will be a better place. Well, you talk about um, an individually focused Gestalt approach. Yeah. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, it, it was done in a in a group with observers. What, what what would be the purpose of doing it in group? For Fritz, I think it's fair to say the purpose of the group was as an audience. He did not want comments from the group. He did not want group interaction. He did not want Will Schutz and encounter groups here at Esalen. And he went bitterly to Michael Murphy and Dick Price to tell them they had to get rid of that stuff because it's uncontrolled. It's people having encounters with each other. There's no expert in charge. They're going to damage each other. He was in favor of liberated aggression, but not in that kind of a... That was a snake pit to him. That yeah. was synonym. That's people attacking other people. He could do that. And... In his, uh, on his behalf, I would say, he had enormous clinical judgment. I've seen films of him where he goes after somebody in his usual, very aggressive, why are you doing that? That's fake. When are you going to get real? And he has this young man in one of his films who is beginning to, uh, to disorganize, to dissociate under that sort of assaultive approach. And Fritz turns right around and begins to provide support, coherence. And I've never seen that really commented on, but he had that, he had that clinical savvy, that wider reach. But of course, other people applying his method <laughs> didn't have it. And when Dick Price took a, a, a sort of gestalt over for Fritz, first of all, they said no to Fritz. Esselin is not going to be the Fritz Perl show only. It's not going to be a, your gestalt commune. It's going to have a variety of things. No one captures the flag. But before we move on to the sort of the Dick uh, era, I want to ask you a bit more about how the how Fritz's gestalt was received at Esselin. Was it enormously popular? Was it controversial? Both. Both. It was uh, I, one of my dearest mentors and friends, a woman named Sonia Nevis, who was a student of Fritz's at his first institute out in, 
in Cleveland, New York and Cleveland developed together. That's where, those were his primary teaching places for many years, all through the late 50s and mid-50s and late-50s. And uh, the Gestalt Institute of Cleveland is still going strong today, and it's, uh, what, it soon be 70 years old. So Sonia was in that original formation group of that institute. She just died a couple of years ago. And Fritz began, people would come here to spend a month or the summer or something. It was all very loosey-goosey in those days. There was no formal one-month program yet. And to study with Fritz. And many of them would be men, and there would be a lot of wives, and there also would be some some husbands who were just kind of here. You could just kind of do that in those days. You could just kind of be here, and I don't know who was paying for what. It wasn't a lot of money changing hands. And so Fritz brought Sonia out to work with the wives. So they'd have a group during the day while he's working with the men. So Sonia was providing quite something quite different to the men who uh, typically, I don't know what the percentage is, but it was very common in those days. You go to Esalen, you spend a week or a month, you take this very assaultive thing that you feel has liberated you from a lot of old cobwebby stuff and restrictions on yourself. You take it home, and within a year, you're divorced. That was a common story. I can't give you numbers to back it up, but a very common story. And it wasn't only at Esalen, because no, no sooner did Fritz start here than this began to spread all over the country. Mm. And those are the years that I was in uh, college and graduate school, mm. and we were getting the effect of it there. People coming from Esalen to Boston, giving a weekend workshop for 20 bucks, and you'd go experience some of that work, maybe not in such clinically seasoned hands. So we're talking about the mid to late 60s. Uh-huh. <laughs> and Esalen was known in the therapy world at that time? Very much so, not only for Fritz, but for all kinds of innovative, new kind of presence-centered, person-centered, and oftentimes more confrontive therapeutic methods, like encounter groups. Yes. Uh, which were not Fritz's work. In, in your mind, you are associating the encounter groups really with a relational style. Of- no, I think they were very much in Fritz's spirit, but he didn't like the way they were unsupervised. That's interesting. So you feel that those two camps, despite the, the way they butted heads, they had more in common than, than not? Much more. Much. I experienced both in my late teens, early 20s as a student in Boston. And they, yeah, you, we didn't know the difference. It was all kind of gestalt work to us uh, in the early days. Did Will Schutz identify, did the word gestalt get associated with his encounter groups? Not so directly. He certainly was aware of that, and he came more out of the Lewinian T-group model. Lewin had started doing research groups on his new field, Group Dynamics, when he was at MIT, and they did this uh, in summer programs down in Rhode Island, at Quonset, Rhode Island. And they'd have big groups, and they had they were doing things like tracking who's the social leader, who's the content leader, group roles in the group dynamics, classic group dynamics stuff about roles in groups, the peacemaker, the prov- provocateur, etc. So they'd have all this stuff, and they'd study it, and they'd score it, and who spoke how many times, and what was the impact. And that was the research part. And in the afternoon, people would just get together and talk about what hadn't been said in the mornings. What was really going on with you when you said that? And, and that became the liveliest focus of the summer. And those were called T groups, which meant training groups, because they didn't have any name for them, because the groups had no damned agenda. Mm. 
And they first couldn't make any sense out of it. And then they realized this is a thing. You just convene a group. And the early strict tea groups, they wouldn't tell you whether you're going to have tables or chairs or sit on the floor or smoke. There was a lot of smoking in groups in those days. Uh, was there any limit on that? You could get quite close in those rooms. Uh, were, were there any ground rules? Anything. Somebody was the designated leader who was paid to convene the thing, but they wouldn't tell you anything. Mm -hmm. So it was totally self-organizing, and it would be sometimes kind of a snake pit. To us, that was all gestalt work. Mm -hmm. on the, that We, the consumers, the 22-year-old the consumers of that work, but Fritz saw very much a difference there. So that's going back to your question of what did Fritz see the use of the group as. It was very much audience. He didn't want any ungoverned participation. He didn't want to know how you reacted to that, what that guy just said. Yes. It all went through him. There's this great quote, I don't know if I, I guess, Jeff Kripal wrote uh, in his book, Esalen, Religion of No Religions, if Fritz Perls came closest to capturing Esalen's flag, Will Schutz came closest to taking it away from him. Uh-huh. And then how did this conflict kind of get resolved? Well, because Michael and Dick had the Esalen flag and they wouldn't give it to either one of them. So uh, they, it never got resolved. Fritz left because it wasn't resolved. And uh, he was here about three and a half years, 64 to maybe the beginning of 68. Always said that he had built Fritz's house. Uh, Michael says that Fritz brought, brought in about $10,000 to that, but it cost 60000 at the time, and that Esalen paid for the house. <laughs> but he lived there several years, and he had his groups there, and many of those early films are in that Fritz living room. Yes, those films that were taken through the, the hole in the wall. Uh -huh, and, and through the haze of smoke billowing. <laughs> when you show them to students today, you put the film up, and peals of laughter go through the group. And, you know... 20 years ago, I could see those films and I didn't see the smoke. Illustration of Gestalt perceptual principles. Uh -huh. <laughs> you don't see things that are just part of the background to you. Just as a sidebar to our discussion, was it a um, normal standard practice to film um, sessions? A lot of times it was. Fritz, before they built Fritz, he would do the sessions down in the lodge at night and everybody would be there. And Alana Rubenfeld, if you know that name, took the work very much in a physical direction, a lot of somatic support. She told me a few years back that you don't realize it, but that oftentimes Fritz would call her up to give hands-on somatic support to the client. So it was, and that to me was like an example of what went on at Esalen when I came here in the 90s, was that support was being transacted surreptitiously. Mm. But that, even that went back to Fritz. <laughs> but you didn't talk about support because support was a compromise to your independence. Mm. Aut to Fritz, the goal of development is autonomy. The infant goes from dependency to autonomy. And Lewin... Uh, before Fritz wrote that, Lewin had already said this idea of the independent individual man is a ridiculous fiction. Uh, the goal of development is interdependence, successful interdependence. That's human life. There are no individual humans living in nature. They can't survive. So after Fritz leaves Esalen, was this idea of an individualistic approach to Gestalt still intact? Very much intact. I think that was, and that was, you know, in, in uh, Dick Price's bailiwick. Michael Murphy was never that interested in personal growth uh, modalities. 
He's committed to personal growth being available, but it's not his field. He's a philosopher, a mystic, politically active, uh, but not psychologically trained or called to that. So he left that sort of all up to Dick and left the management of the community up to Dick. And Dick could see, I think this is what I've pieced together from talking to Chris Price, to his, his close student Eric Erickson, to Dorothy Charles, lots of people about his work. He could see that you couldn't just authorize a lot of little Fritzes to run around this property and tell them, everybody, you can go work with each other now you've learned the method, which is what some people had taken home from Fritz. Dick put the kibosh on that said, no, we can have an adaptation of that model, which, but which radically restricts the power of the facilitator, which he didn't even call a facilitator, much less an expert. He called it a reflector. So you have an initiator or a person who's sharing material or their experience. You have a reflector, which has a lot of Rogerian uh, aspects to it. That is, you, you empathically reflect what the person said and that'll let them deepen on their own. That's Carl Rogers, who was here in those years, but not as influential. But his method permeated lots of places. That's the training that Dick gave people, how to sit with people in a non-interventionist mode. And the strength of that is it's so permissioning, it's so permissive, and it takes some of the confrontation out of uh, the Perlsian approach adapting it to use in a residential community so people could work with each other safely and not do a lot of damage. And uh, at the same time, the probably the, the flat side of that approach is that it doesn't have much impetus, much forward motion in it. That there's nobody there who's like proposing experiments or, or helping you question your habitual way of doing things and, and putting it to the test or trying something different or having as I say, an experiment. So that's a little more missing in Dick because Dick felt people wouldn't be trained enough to offer each other that. So he had other teachers coming here all the time that offered that, but that wasn't the gestalt practice mode that was being taught here to the community. So by the, the early 1970s, had Encounter begun to fade from being one of the, the leading uh, principles of therapy here at Esalen? I would say by the 80s it had. In the 70s, it was still going strong. Still I mean, it was actually being, we had interracial encounters. That didn't work out very well because we weren't really looking at the, the basic ground of power differential. It's like, and that was missing in a lot of Fritz's work. There's no context. You come in here and the fact that Different groups have been privileged, different voices have been privileged. That's allowed to kind of stand unquestioned. Now, if somebody is afraid to speak, Fritz could be very on that and very and push them to push themselves. It could be very helpful. But uh, he wasn't doing anything about the people that were quite permissioned to speak, <laughs> maybe too much. Uh, uh, he, that was not on his radar. So, um, and then Dick died in 85. Mm very suddenly, very traumatic for the community. By this time, had, would you say, Gestalt evolved significantly? Um, Gestalt had developed a, a deep bifurcation between those who were influenced by Lewin. They tended to be in the Midwest of the country. Cleveland was the center of them. And they were really social psychologists who had come to Gestalt through that, 
So they were very much, and Sonia Neves, who I spoke of as working out here with the spouses, was very much in that camp. She went home and pioneered Gestalt marital therapy, Gestalt couples and family therapy, adapting from Virginia Satir here at Esalen to study systems theory, which was very much uh, congruent with Lewin's ideas and was also very relational. Each person is affecting the others. Let's study that. How's that change? If you change one person, how, what are the knock-on effects downstream from that? So out there in the world, both of these strains of Gestalt were going strong and spreading around the world. And that was the 80s, the early 90s. That was the heyday of Gestalt influence under that name. Mm. I would say today is the heyday of Gestalt influence, but it's under every name in it's like half the names in the psychological... They all have threads of content. Yeah, and most of them would tell you so. Some of them don't quite realize it, yeah. but most of them, their very powerful theories, would tell you that. All of positive therapy and sort of problem-solving therapy and coping, building on your strengths, that all comes out of Gestalt, mm-hmm. and then they would say so. So you came to Esalen about 25 years ago through the res ed, Eric Erickson, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. They... they invited you on account of articles and books you had written that were that were critiquing Pearls' Gestalt work. Yes, I was saying that Pearls had not really milked, that Gestalt was the basic. We Relational psychology, meanwhile, had was coming into its own by the late 80s. When I first got interested in it, it was basically a bunch of people who studied babies and attachment. Mm. And uh, Bowlby's work, Ainsworth, classic names in infant development. But... Uh, hadn't quite extended that into developmental models for the lifetime. So that work was going on, and I was very much part of that. And that's what drew me to Gestalt, because I felt like, well, the relational movement doesn't have a full-blown model of human personality and development, but Gestalt psychology does. And Gestalt therapy, in its classic book and in its roots, does represent that, but Pearls left it out. So let's write the rest of Gestalt. I thought this was going to be of medium interest to four people, you know, in the world. Instead, it caused a huge ruckus in the Gestalt world internationally. By people who felt threatened by that idea? Oh, my goodness. Well, and who felt like uh, they'd gotten rain in the desert. Both camps, the two camps of Gestalt, were replicated then in the new generation. Uh, It was... uh, shocking and, of course, gratifying to have, even though a lot of it was negative, to have, like, people noticed this rather obscure book that I wrote and the uh, Psychology uh, Today book club picked it up and and, uh, and it had a wide circulation. And it almost feels unlikely for you to have been invited to Esalen to, to speak. Well, except that um, Eric Erickson, who worked here as a major Gestalt teacher who was a student of of uh, Dick's, had also felt that uh, Dick's were, he felt that Dick, he was sort of in a lot of ways Dick's closest student, and Eric was taking a PhD in, uh, in intersubjective psychoanalysis. So you can imagine how radically relational that is. It's intersubjective, like we're constructing this moment together. Ah. Maybe you're the therapist and I'm the client. It doesn't change the fact that we're constructing this moment together and we have to deconstruct it together. And if I challenge you about what you're bringing to this construction that you're not aware of, you've got to be open in that model, which I believe in, 
to taking that on mm-hmm. and saying, hmm, huh, maybe I was a little uncomfortable about what you said. And yeah, I did. And you ended up feeling shamed by my intervention. Now, what could I have contributed to that? I wasn't feeling and owning my own discomfort with your challenge. And so who? what happened? Somehow you ended up feeling shame, not me. We both contributed to that. Let's peel it back a little farther. That would be intersubjective, very relationally based. Eric was studying that. So he felt uh, very... He was part of the rain in the desert crowd, like, hey, here's a book. Instead of leaving Gestalt behind, by that time, uh, Dick had been dead for a decade. Instead of leaving Gestalt behind, we can find what we need in Gestalt. But we got to have this corrective perspective to not to take away Fritz's legacy, but to build on what's missing from it. So do you think that in the the years after you came to Esalen and sort of began to disseminate this idea that the trajectory and character of uh, Gestalt at Esalen changed? Yes, definitely. Absolutely. Even when I first got here, I think if the same split was here in the community, and I don't know the exact fractions, but it seemed like some people were very reactive to what I was saying, and others were like, uh, you mean I feel an impulse to support her and I can say that and not be shamed as a rescuer or, a, you know, and I'm like, yes, yeah, support is a, a kind of the basic human gesture. That's how we survive as a group. Uh, we don't we want don't want to lose our individuality, but uh, it, it is emergent out of a web of connection or else we're not alive. The problem is not so simple as Fritz was making it, that all you have to do is just always emphasize your own distinction and be sure not to be confluent with anybody else. Yes, to me, it seems like the times have changed so much. I can can barely even imagine an environment that would be so individualistic that that where people would be shunned for supporting one another in, in the process. Shamed, I would say, not shunned, shamed. Because they'd go right back to working together. Everybody still had to live together. You still had to work those things out, uh-huh. even surreptitiously. But, I mean, as somebody who in those years was really traveling the Gestalt world, teaching at centers all over the world, I would say Esalen was the last place where uh, a sort of classic form of Perlzian approach was hanging on by that time. Wow. Nowadays, I always say if you're a renegade, I learned what the three stages of of a renegade's life are if you live long enough. I'm 75, so I've lived a long time and had a lot of years of this, watching this evolve. And the first stage in my case was from the reactive crowd. Everything Wheeler says is full of shit. He's he's traducing Gestalt. He's, uh, you know, let the infidel into the temple and uh, he must be, you know, his books must be burned. That's well, partly a literal quote. And, uh, and then you get into the next stage, which is, well, what uh, the things he says, some of it is good, but what's good is not new, and what's new is not good. Uh-huh. <laughs> but some of that was already in, you know. And then comes the third stage, which is, well, actually, that's what we were saying all along. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where we are now to some degree. We're totally, I mean, there are hardly any, partly it's a generational thing. Yeah. The people that were most upset are sad to say, because some of them were good friends that I enjoyed jousting with. They're long dead. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. 
I'm I'm curious about I'm curious about the, the kind of the state and the focus of Gestalt at, at Esalen in this moment. If do you have an opinion re- regarding kind of like what it looks like, what it what it where the ideology is around it? I think uh, we're in danger of losing some of that heritage that uh, uh, really had a lot of strengths and provides a common language and a common frame for uh, how we transact things here. That, of course, it's had its problems over the years. It's had its Freudian excesses. But basically, it's been a very positive force in the community. I think there's some core messages to Gestalt that are so relevant to people who come to Esalen as clients, as teachers, or as employees, or as inter- you know, month-long people. Uh, and one is uh, you need to find the direction that suits your nature and your heart. And, you're, and you can find it. Every person has talents. Every person has a natural bent or one, maybe more than one inside them. And with support, you can find what that is. And, you know, I go all over the world talking about Esalen. And everywhere I go, this can be in, in uh, Slovenia or something. Somebody will come up and say, I found my life purpose at Esalen. Hmm. And then sometimes, I mean, sometimes it's touchingly funny. They'll say, uh, we'll talk about it a little bit. See, I was only there once, and uh, actually it was only for an afternoon. <laughs> I'm thinking, really? Really? And you found your life's purpose? Yes, and my partner. You know, <laughs> and I'm thinking, okay, it's in the water, obviously, because <laughs> this happens. <laughs> well, we, I mean, we both found our partners. Yeah, you did, I did. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we, we spoke a little bit in the beginning of the um, podcast about uh, Fritz's brand of Gestalt being especially culturally appropriate for the, the 1960s. What do you think about the cultural climate these days? Is Gestalt in tune with it? Yeah, I think that what's demanded, I think, is very much in tune because what we need is a greater level of complexity. The world is too complex for us, and that keeps everybody thrown and in state bordering on fear, and nobody's thinking very clearly. That supports mass hysteria and mass uncritical thing. You know, we could cite some current examples in the political landscape. And uh, not only in this country, across the world, people are feeling that's really what fascism is. It's a kind of groupthink to simplify the world. If I can just get the world simplified into their, there's us and them, and you're with me or you're against me, then think how simple everything becomes. Because I don't need to know the nuances of people around me. When a war is over, the allies often turn on each other and say, I don't even like you in the first place. But they didn't say that during the war. So if you keep their war spirit going, just have a permanent war. Why not? It's already... The map is out there in Orwell's 1984, and it's kind of what we live with now. And that keeps everybody simple-minded, literally. And also, I don't need to understand my quote-unquote enemy. They're just my enemy. That's all I need to know about them. Uh, We're just on the verge of everybody having a nuclear weapon in their closet. Gestalt can be very, very supportive of complexity thinking. We know now something about how the brain bears complexity thinking. And you know how it does it? With the curriculum of Esalen. When you develop the body and the heart relationships, the empathy, and the mind for, for clear thinking, and the spirit for that larger connection, and the relationships, the community, 
which is not an add-on. It's one of the five basics of our nature. Then your brain becomes robust to stress. All the centers come on at once in conflict or in contact. And that's what's needed. We need Gestalt education. We need the Esalen curriculum for the human potential all over the world so that people can bear the complexity of today's world and not lapse into this me, us, them, uh, with me or against me, simplified mind. Well, great. Thank you, Gordon, so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for what you're doing all this work. Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Lori Putnam, and Shannon Hudson. Our music is by Nico Holloman. If you'd like to hear more episodes, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, and more. You can also find all of our podcasts archived at our website, esalen.org. That's E-S-A-L-E-N.org. The Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization. Programs like this one are made possible by the support of our donors. 